As we were praying for Sarah, I was reflecting upon uh, what occurred here yesterday. Yesterday, I had the privilege of performing a celebration of life service for Dorothy McMillan, who served alongside of Richard as a pioneer missionary to the Central African Republic. And I thought, how fitting. Dorothy faithfully served for 40 years, giving up everything, leaving the comforts of this country, and went with her husband to serve the Lord among a group of people who desperately needed to hear the message that we hear every Sunday, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, and this is the only way to be delivered. As we think of Sarah and where she's going, we know she's going to a place where they're under the dominion of a false god, false religion, that will damn them to hell. And we need to pray and uplift Sarah as she goes, that she will be successful with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit would take the blinders off and open eyes like he did for us so that we can see the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was also thinking as we're praying for Sarah, you know, this is not just a one-for-one exchange where one missionary faithfully serves and comes off the field and then another goes. We can send more Sarah T's to share the gospel. Can you imagine there are people in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? There are people in this world who perhaps they've heard his name, but they have no idea. No idea of the significance of a verse like Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, the Greek. This is the only way for people to be delivered. And I'm so thankful to be able to pray with and for Sarah as she partners and goes to a very dark place, shed the light of the glory of Christ. Please pray for her this week as she travels. We're going to look at Genesis 49 together today, and if you remember last week, I uh, ran up the white flag and I cut my sermon in two, and I'm glad I did that. It gives me a little bit more time uh, to reflect upon the second half of Genesis 49 with you. So turn to Genesis chapter 49. Uh, last week we started through the blessings or the uh, anti-blessings, the curses that Jacob pronounces on his sons. There are 12 of these sons and he's going to work his way through them systematically. And the first three sons did not fare very well. They were Reuben, who was unstable as water, who was born with preeminence, but Jacob says, you will no longer have the preeminence. He not only loses preeminence, he loses the birthright and the blessing. Then Simeon and Levi, they're called up to the deathbed together. Their verdict will come together. Because of their violence, in their anger, they killed a city full of men and they hamstrung oxen. Because of their violence, they will be scattered among the people of Israel and will have no land for themselves by themselves. Well, the fourth son, uh, and the one uh, that we spent most of our time on last week, he fares much better. His name is Judah, 
and uh, his uh, blessing is much longer, more significant, and from him we learn from verses 8 through 12 that there will come a victor, a lion will come from Judah's tribe, a king will come who will get tribute and the obedience of all peoples. And what we learned last week is that some of Judah's prophecies are not quite yet fulfilled. We think that the, the lion who comes from Judah's tribe was Jesus Christ. And in his first coming, many of these promises are fulfilled, but there's still a few things holding out. And that's okay, because God is not done with the Israelite people. Matter of fact, I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Perhaps you remember how he ends that three-section chapter about the fate of Israel and the fate of those who are Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. He closes that chapter with these words. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and then... All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. One day, in the future, Jesus will come again to rule over Israel, and then all peoples will obey him and give tribute to Judah's powerful successor, Jesus Christ, during that future kingdom. Well, today, we'll consider the fate of the remaining eight brothers. We've looked at four, look at eight, and we'll consider what happens to them. And as we do so, we'll learn more about how God works in lives, in our lives, and we'll learn how to attain God's grace and provision today. The way I'd consider this passage, if I were you, just to kind of set your focus as we begin is, uh, do you like reading biographies? How many of you like reading biographies? Okay, short biographies, right? <laughs> Biographical sketches. <laughs> as we read this chapter, we can kind of read this as a biography, and one of the best things about biographies, I'm actually reading two right now, I really enjoy reading biographies, but one of the best things is you can be inspired. Right, these are people who lived and died in most cases, and they did something normally that uh, attributes to the fact that there's a biography written about them. Um, and so you're inspired by their faithfulness and success, or you can learn from their mistakes. As we're going through the 12 tribes of Israel, I think a, a, an alert believer in Jesus Christ will learn from mistakes and be inspired by any faithfulness he sees here. I want to start by reading through Genesis 49 and these blessings with you. Uh, I'm going to look at verse 1, so uh, please follow along in God's holy, inspired, inerrant word, and we'll look, read verses 1 through 28. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. 
you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce in their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them, Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of the grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings on the breast uh, of the breast of, and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and in evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. These blessings come in two halves. We covered the first half last week. It, it culminates with the, the larger blessing being placed on Judah and his line. The second half is also arranged around, literally arranged around, a more substantial blessing that's placed on Joseph near the end of the second half. And so as we go through this, we'll see that Jacob picks up the pace with some of the boys, offering only one sentence or one verse, and then they're dismissed, and then he'll lead to Joseph, which gets five near the end. So we start with Zebulon in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. 
Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Here, Zebulon was born to Jacob and Leah when Leah negotiated time with her husband for some mandrakes that she gave to Rachel. Here, Zebulon is promised a land adjacent to the sea, which if you're looking at a map of the 12 tribes of Israel, you might wonder how they get that land, but it appears as if they share some land with Issachar near the Sea of Galilee. Zebulon becomes a small tribe and makes the most of its limited opportunities and prosperity. Then in verses 14 and 15, we learn more about Issachar, and he starts by saying Issachar is a strong donkey. I'd ask the children in the room or the teens in the room, how would you like it if your dad called you a strong donkey? Okay, well, um, well but by ancient standards, maybe, you know, we, we don't know exactly what that means, so we've got to kind of dig in a little bit here. He's a strong donkey, probably indicating that the tribe of Issachar was strong, able to do hard work. They're strong tribe, tough. They're not lazy, yet at a point in the future, this tribe will sell off its land and become dependent on foreign nations so that they can enjoy the comforts of the land. That is, they submit in the future to Canaanite lordship to remain in a fertile land, and Issachar becomes infamous for selling out their souls to enjoy the comforts of this world. I've heard a lot of preaching on Issachar before, some of it very creative. By the way, there's just two verses here. Uh, so I don't think we should go too far with this, but they, they, they are, I think there is something to this fact. They sell out their souls to enjoy the fruit and the, the bounty of the land. He then moves on to Dan in verse 16 through 18. Look at, look at verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. From the line of Dan comes the judges of Israel. And the judges play a very important role in the early Israelite people. As soon as they get into the promised land and they establish that, the judges are very important to help them at a critical juncture of their life. Yet, in verse 17, he compares Dan to a serpent or a viper that bites. And uh, I think that means, uh, it says they're small, they'll bite the horse's heel. I think this probably refers to judges who will rise up and will deliver them momentarily from their enemies. Uh, so I, someone like Samson, for instance, comes from this line, and you remember the story of how it ends for Samson, pushing the columns and destroying a good number of the people. They're like a serpent that bites the horse's heel. That's the tribe of Dan. Yet, sadly, later in Scripture, what we learn about the tribe of Jan, Dan is that they'll be the first to introduce idolatry into the people of Israel. And subsequently, one of the things I noticed this week is as you're reading in the final book of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, and there's a discussion of the 12 tribes, Dan is replaced in the future. With no blessing or description of him, he's replaced by someone else in the 12 tribes of Israel. While the early Israelites might think that deliverance would come from this line of judges, from this line of people, because of their, the significant power of some of them. 
Jacob, I think, prophetically understands it's not the case. And so he gives us this short but powerful prayer. Verse 18, I've highlighted it in my Bible. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. Okay, it's not going to come from Dan and line of judges. He recognizes or knows that salvation will come from God. And I think Jacob's short but significant prayer becomes important for other biblical characters and authors later. I just had a great time this week kind of following these key words, salvation and Lord. And one of the things I noticed is that later on, the biblical author David, for instance, in Psalm 3 and verse 8 says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember that passage? Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to God. He owns it. It's his. Later on in the Psalms, David says this in Psalm 37, verse 39. The salvation of the righteous belongs to the Lord. I think David might have been reflecting upon Jacob's statement here in verse 18. I await for your salvation, O Lord. This is picked up by Jonah. If you have a second, just turn over in your Bible to Jonah chapter 2. This idea of salvation being the Lord's is through Scripture. It's a biblical theological theme established by different authors and people. You know the story of Jonah. That's why I'm using this. You could go to different places to see salvation belonging to the Lord or salvation coming from the Lord. But in Jonah chapter 2, you remember what happens to Jonah? Uh, I'm actually going to be preaching on this in a few weeks. And I was in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, Jonah prays a prayer. Do you remember where he is? He's in the belly of a great fish, right? And you're reading through this prayer, and you you come to verse 9, Jonah 2. When he's in the fish's stomach, he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, Jonah once delivered. And he knows that deliverance comes from Yahweh. That's what Jacob knew. That's what David knew. That's what Jonah knows. And by the way, if you continue to establish this, go, go over in your Bible to the last book of Scripture, Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Jacob's short but important prayer, recognizing that deliverance won't come from Dan, but that it comes from Yahweh, is picked up later on by the Apostle John. In Revelation 7, as he's describing What happens to a great multitude of people? Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This great multitude of redeemed people, the church of Jesus Christ, understands something. They know salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. So we're considering Gad, or I'm sorry, Dan, 
Jacob realizes that deliverance won't come from this line of people, but that it comes from the Lord. And I hope you believe that because you sang that already today. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. I invite you to turn back to Genesis 49 and we pick up with the next brother, Gad. Poor Gad, he's only given one verse and it's a play off of, the, off of his name. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. The Hebrew word Gad sounds like the word for raiders. So this is a play on words. The raiders will raid Gad, the raiders, but Gad or the raiders will raid them right back. Because Gad's land was out on the perimeter of the land. Um, and I unfortunately didn't put, uh, I, I prepared a PowerPoint and I forgot to put it in, in today. So I'll get my act together next week. But if you saw a map of the promised land, you would see that Gad uh, has land east of the Jordan River. Way out on the perimeter, they're exposed to the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites. And so what happens throughout the history of Gad is their con marauders continually come and attack Gad. Okay, but after they attack, Gad was really good at striking them back as they were retreating. And that's a prophetic statement given to Gad. Next is Asher in verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher's people will enjoy a fertile land that brings riches and comforts, things normally only kings would have. They'd be very prosperous because of their land. And then uh, Jacob has a word for Naphtali. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Remember the name Naphtali is a sad name. It means wrestlings and it was commemorating the wrestlings between Leah and Rachel for Jacob's affection. Remember they're having sons just to try to buy his affection? So Naphtali's name is wrestlings. But in the future here, Naphtali will enjoy a rich land full of natural resources that make a beautiful home. And that leads to the longest blessing of all of the blessings from verses 22 through 26, and that's Joseph. So I want to slow down on this one. Remember the whole second half is heading toward Joseph. So let's look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep uh, that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. You're like Judah before Joseph's blessing is most significant and his people will be that. We've already seen Jacob's love for Joseph's sons. Remember, he had an adoption ceremony in the previous chapter, and he treats them now as his own sons. So the, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh will be the greatest tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. Here, though, Joseph's future involves three things. If I were just summarizing them, one is prosperity. In verse 22, he'll be a fruitful bough, which is a trunk 
or the main branch of a tree. You'll be a fruitful trunk planted by waters with branches that run on and on and on. As I say, he's prosperous. Joseph's people will be prosperous. They'll be protected. Verses 23 and 24. And this is true in spite of his enemies because God will protect him and his people. Although his enemies bitterly attacked him, I think the enemies here could be describing Joseph's brothers. They're the ones shooting arrows at him, metaphorically here. Those attacks failed and Joseph persevered because the God of Israel was with him. And then uh, Jacob describes God for Joseph in five ways. Mighty one of Jacob, his shepherd, the stone of Israel. And he goes on and on describing the fact that God protected Joseph from his enemies, the arrows of his enemies. But then in verses 25 and 26, the key idea is blessing. Here, blessing or words for bless are used six times in these two verses, 25 and 26. If you were reading that with me, maybe you picked those out. I've got them underlined in my Bible. And this picks up on a key theme of the book of Genesis, blessing. Matter of fact, one of my favorite commentaries on the book is called Creation and Blessing. The word blessing or words for blessing are used 88 times in Genesis. And here in these two verses, you have kind of like a grand finale of fireworks. I was just at a fireworks display recently, and they really didn't have much of a grand finale. And you're like, man, I got ripped off here. Is it over? Is it over? No, no grand finale. Here's a grand finale of words of blessing, 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 blessing. And I liked how, uh, I think it was uh, Charles Spurgeon describes what Jacob is doing. He says, Jacob seems to ransack heaven and earth to find blessings for Joseph. Jacob is pouring out blessings, the richest of blessings on his favorite son. Again. He says, I receive more blessing than my father's, and may they all be upon you, Joseph, as you move forward. So Joseph will experience prosperity and protection and blessing. That leaves just one brother, the youngest, Benjamin, left. Verse 27, just one sentence about him. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and in the evening, dividing the spoil. I think this is a prophetic statement by Jacob saying that Benjamin will be a man uh, and his tribe will be experts in warfare. If you look through the book of Judges, you can see tribute to this over and over again, like Judges chapter 20, where we learn that there were many skilled left-handed marksmen that came out of Benjamin. And so Jacob describes Benjamin as devouring and dividing prey all throughout the day in the morning, and in the evening. And these are the blessings suitable to each of the sons of Jacob, the, the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And with this blessing scene ending, Jacob is prepared to die. And I want to just read the last few verses to see the account of his death. Look at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, burying me with my fathers in the cave that is the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. 
There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob wants to be buried alongside of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah, his wife. And then Moses explains, he drew up his feet into his bed, he breathed his last. It's as though Jacob chooses the moment of his own death. And uh, he passes away. Now with this deathbed scene done, all of Genesis 49 talked through. I want us to consider how this might relate to Moses' original readers and then to us. Here in this section, Moses is calling his original readers Israel in the wilderness to consider their past and their future. I think this book, this portion, is particularly written first by Moses for the second generation in the wilderness. Their parents have already failed in the wilderness. And now this generation is on the brink of the promised land. And I think these descriptions are written so that they might consider what will they do? Will they be like some of these sons who were unfaithful and judged by God? Will they be like their parents who didn't have faith to get into the promised land? Or will they repent of sin? And will they strive to serve and obey God with their lives? As we close, I want us to also consider how about us? Will we learn from these biographical sketches? The way I'd like to end would be to draw your attention to two failures among these brothers who were still able to experience God's blessing. Perhaps you picked up on these two failures who were able to experience God's blessing. The first one was Levi. Levi. I like to say Levi, then my son always wakes up. No, just kidding. Uh, first one is Levi. But Levi received an anti-blessing, right? A curse. No birthright or inheritance because of his violence. Him and Simeon, right? Partners in crime. They get nothing good here. Yet, years later... The descendants of Levi receive a special calling from God and enjoy his blessings. Now, why is that? Why, does, why do his descendants fare well, but like not Simeon's, for instance? I mean, could there be two brothers any more alike? And yet there's a future and hope for Levi. Well, I think that there are two significant stories that reveal why, and we don't have time to look at them, unfortunately, but I'll remind you of them. The first one, and you can read it this week, is Exodus 32. Exodus 32, the golden calf incident. And perhaps you remember the story of the golden calf. This story appears, uh, occurs over 400 years after Jacob's blessing. So we kind of fast forward 400 years, and the people come out in the wilderness, and Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And do you remember what the people were doing down on the, the land? Based on Aaron, the high priest, is leading them. Right? He's leading them to burn down all their earrings and rings and make a golden calf. And so Moses comes down off the mountain. He's all fired up about what happens. And he asks Aaron, 
What happened? Aaron says something like this. He says, I, I asked them to take off all their earrings and rings, and I threw them in the fire, and poof, out came a golden calf. Something like, you know, taking the blame here, shifting the blame. But Moses then appeals to God to deliver his people. Do not destroy your people. And then he gives the people an ultimatum. He said, who is on the Lord's side? And to the people who were on the Lord's side, says, take up a sword and kill your brothers who were disobedient in offering this worship. And you know who was on the Lord's side and took a sword and killed 3,000 men who were idolatrous, the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi. So that after that point, God says, I'm going to give you a special calling. You are going to be priests of the most holy God. There's another story that you could write down as well. It's in Numbers 25. Another key point in the wilderness narratives in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 13. The Israelite people are being disobedient. There's a heinous act of immorality done among the people, but then along comes a very zealous Levite by the name of Phineas. And he takes a javelin and he spears it through a man and a woman to defend the integrity of the Lord. And because of that, the tribe of Levi receive a perpetual priesthood. They're given the honor of serving and worship, and God declares that their priesthood will be perpetual, will be continual. So although they're cursed by God, God rewards future generations who stand for the Lord. Levi, a tribe with no portion, now has the Lord for his portion. The other example I'd lift up to you, and I'll do this a lot briefer, more briefly, is Judah. Judah failed miserably with someone he thought was a prostitute, but later on came to realize was his daughter-in-law Tamar. Yet Judah responds with humility, contrition, and repentance. Remember what he said. She has been more righteous than I. And from that moment, Judah was changed. He's a changed man. Things are different for him moving forward so that eventually God will make this statement and will declare that the future deliverer of the world will come from this man's seed. The story of these two men, Levi and Judah, and their descendants in particular, reveal that God can break through and overcome our past. By the time Moses writes this, all these men had come and gone. All this talk about dead men's sins and consequences of it called his readers to examine themselves. Would they learn from the mistakes of their forefathers and determine to stand amid their own temptations? And historically, the answer to that question is yes. They believe that God can give them the promised land. They obey, and God gives them the land. But how about you? What will you do with these descriptions? Twelve sons, many failures, many mistakes, and God's judgment through and through. People getting bogged down, generations getting bogged down by their own failures. What will you do with this? 
Will you learn from their examples? Sadly, some of us have and do commit the same exact sins of these brothers. Anger, violence, lust. Will you learn? Will you learn from these biographical sketches? Will you learn from God's grace to people like Levi and Judah? And after your sin, repent. Repent and determine again to live for Judah's lion. Will you commit this week again to live for God? So some of these same punishments wouldn't have to be true of you. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for this text of Scripture, for the blessings, the curses pronounced by Jacob upon the people. Lord, it is certainly fun to read a biography. We can learn much. We can learn how to live better lives. We can learn what not to do. But then, Father, to learn and to know that this is an inspired biography, biographical sketch of these sons and what became of them. I pray that we might learn from them. For my brothers or sisters in the room here who are struggling with some of the same sins committed by these brothers, myself included, I pray that we would learn. Lord, we prefer to learn the easy way to learn from the mistakes of other people, to learn from the consequences they paid. So Father, help us to learn. And help us to rejoice in Judah's lion who comes. Help us to rejoice in the future that we have with him. Know that it's ultimate and true. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.